dimensional, transforming, musical, linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. I'm Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. In today's uh, salon, we're going to hear a talk that Eric Davis gave at the MAPS Palenque Norte lectures during the 2005 Burning Man Festival. And if you listen to the previous podcast of Daniel Pinchbeck's talk that came just before Eric's, then you have a little idea of what it was like on the playa that day. If you go to our website, matrixmasters.com slash podcasts, you'll find a link to the Burning Man 2005 page where you'll see some pictures that were taken during his talk. And those pictures, as well as these recordings, by the way, are all thanks to Bruce Damer. And uh, also on that 2005 Burning Man page, I've put a link to Bruce's uh, site where he's posted a whole lot of uh, Burning Man pictures, including quite a few from the MAPS Blanque Norte lectures. And there are even a, a clip or two, a couple really short, just a few second video clips of uh, one of Daniel and one of Eric as they were speaking in the uh, domed structure there. And, and the clips are short, but they're, they really give a good feeling for what it was like in the dome the day the talks were given. Now, Eric titled his talk uh, that day, Visionary Art, Visionary Design. And among the many topics he'll be discussing, he even weaves in the spirit of our dear departed friend Terrence McKenna. Now, I'm going to tap into the audio stream here just as Bruce Damer begins his introduction of Eric. And to be honest, I guess I could have just picked up when Eric starts speaking. But the truth is that Bruce says so many nice things about me that I, <laughs> I just couldn't cut it out, you know? So I guess you can all tell that I'm certainly not under the influence of any ego-dissolving substance right at the moment. <laughs> anyway, let's get on with the program. Here's Bruce and Eric. Acknowledge Lorenzo Haggerty for starting this series uh, called Palenque Norte with uh, maps uh, two years ago and making this all happen. Uh, Palenque Norte is Palenque, Mexico, El Norte here in, in Burning Man, and it kind of is carrying on that tradition that was established over many years in, in Palenque. And uh, we've been lucky enough to have gracious hosts every year to. Uh, uh, to to bring you all together and continue this, and there's so many new fresh faces and bigger crowds, it's, it's wonderful. And uh, so I want to acknowledge Lorenzo for he's not here this year. Uh, he's probably going to come back next year, uh, but uh, just want to acknowledge him for for doing that and for all the people who helped set up this stage and for Snowflake Village. And uh, do you have any uh, announcements? No. No announcements to make. So without further ado, because we have to keep moving, I want to introduce Eric Davis. And as I was saying before, uh, you've read his books and his articles and his thinking. Uh, it really is a mirror on you, I think. So it's a really good mirror, and it's sort of a, a mind-opening mirror on, on everybody here and what you're doing and what, what you're seeking to do. So without further ado, Eric, here's uh, the comms. And he's going to start up his, so we're going to make sure it gets well recorded because all of this will be on the site, palenquenorte.org. And if you just Google Palenque Norte, and that's the Q-U-E.org, uh, or Palenque Norte, you'll find all these talks probably within a couple weeks. And there's a mailing list, and there's a tribe, and everything, uh, just to, to keep you in touch with this community that we're trying, we're, we're continuing to, to grow. And without uh, any more ado, here's Eric. All right, thanks, Bruce and the MAPS folks for setting this up, and a distant Lorenzo for masterminding the Palenque Norte lectures. I mean, in some ways, uh, certainly in terms of, of, of Daniel, I can, I can say, and Bruce, too, I, I, I know, and many of the other people have spoken, as we're, in, in some ways we're kind of fragments of, or vectors of Terrence, people who are inspired by Terrence McKenna uh, in different ways and have taken those inspirations and, and, and gone in, in different directions that still share something of his uh, uh, unique 
inspiring, charming, amusing, tricksterish spirit, and that these these whole series of talks, in a way, comes out of uh, that legacy. And the aspect of his, you know, work or his inspiration that I'm going to be talking about today has to do with the with the imagination and with the cultural expression of the imagination. And I kind of picked this uh, idea because I wanted to tie together a number of different themes going on right now. One is the, the theme of this uh, Burning Man, the psyche, and I'll talk about the relationship of the psyche to the imagination in a bit. Another is the role of and, and importance of visionary art in this culture, something that's just been increasingly uh, important to me and something I've gotten more obsessed with uh, over the last few years as I've met contemporary visionary artists and learned more about uh, the tradition um, and uh, want to kind of create a, try to understand more about why art is so important in this particular culture or this particular set of overlapping uh, cultural zones with its emphasis on visionary experience, on play, on bohemianism, on hedonism, on uh, ecstatic wonder, on uh, profound cosmic amusement. There's something in there about art that's extremely important that I want to get to. And then finally, I kind of want to address in a way a perspective on the, the, the problem that Daniel raised at the very end uh, when he really kind of took off. We all sort of felt it. Uh, about how to do something now. What does it mean to do something? How do we stay true to our, you know, crazy, wild, inspired, poetic, artistic selves and deal with the, the reality on the ground? It's a very frightening, confusing situation. And I want to kind of shift uh, uh, our, uh, or talk about a shift from an emphasis on visionary art to what I'm calling visionary design. But before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about the imagination, because the imagination is an excellent portal into many of the major themes uh, that certainly dominate this, this particular Burning Man, but also dominate a lot of the questions about how we, how we proceed and how do we deal with, let's say, visionary information. Let's say we're mostly more or less kind of skeptical, secular types, we don't believe that it accounts for everything. We've had peculiar experiences. We're starting to get intuitions, synchronicities, things happen. But, but what are we supposed to do with them? Do we become true believers? Do we create some system that we hold on to? Or do we try to keep an open process of letting these th inspirations come in and yet also honoring, in, in some sense, our own real tradition, which is the, sec the skeptical secular West? And one of the things I want to suggest is that going deeper into the imagination and understanding more about what the imagination means in a fuller sense uh, is one of the ways to kind of approach uh, this problem. So to begin, I want to uh, read something short from my great big book of tales, of, uh, portions of a poem by William Blake, who is, of course, one of the West's great visionary artists. And you'll no doubt be familiar with the opening. To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. That's usually where people stop, but I'll go on a bit. A robin redbreast in a cage puts all heaven in a rage. A dove house filled with doves and pigeons shudders hell through all its regions. A dog starved at his master's gate predicts the ruin of the state. A horse misused upon the road calls to heaven for human blood. And he goes on this way, talking about incidents in ordinary life, incidents of, of joy and incidents of suffering, of cruelty. And he draws these very mundane examples, a, a dove in a cage, what's the big deal? Uh, you know, a horse getting slapped by its master and connects them with this larger visionary reality, the world of heaven, of gods, of, of, of uh, of the large soul, and it goes on and on in this way, and then it ends in just a very marvelous, uh, poetic, memorable fashion. Um, every night and every morn, some to misery are born. Every morn and every night, some are born to sweet delight. Some are born to sweet delight. Some are born to endless nights. 
We are led to believe a lie when we see not through the eye which was born in a night to perish in a night, when the soul slept in beams of light. God appears and God is light to those poor souls who dwell in night, but does a human form display to those who dwell in realms of day. And I'll just talk about that last little bit because the connection between these ordinary events, the dove in a cage, the horse getting beaten, the dog crying, and these larger issues of our society, the ruin of the state, heaven and hell, the, connection, the connecting tissue there is the imagination. The imagination is the faculty, meaning like eyesight or sense, the sense that we have, and it is also the place that links the ordinary, material, physical, imagistic reality that we were emerged, we were submerged in every day with a larger, fuller, possibly more real realm of meanings, impressions, stories, archetypes, God forms. It's the sort of connection between our world and the dream world and the world even farther beyond that, a world of abstract ideas and forms that are very difficult for us to wrap our heads around because they're so transcendental, they're so otherworldly, they're so mystical. And so the imagination is a kind of vessel that connects these two very different realms. And at the end he's talking about for those poor souls who dwell in night, God appears as endless light. It's a kind of compensation, it's the mystical vision. But for people who dwell in day, it appears in a, God appears in a human form. Now, why would he say this? In a way, it's like, oh, it's more of that humanistic uh, obsession stuff, you know, that Christianity kind of overdid with the, the emphasis on the human being rather than the natural world. But Blake's uh, up, to, up to something else here, which is to acknowledge the incredible soulful power that comes through actual physical bodies, other people, other personalities, all of you today, incredibly individual. I look out here, it's, a, it's remarkable. I could focus in on each one of you and a kind of story emerges or a sense, a, a temperament, a flavor that's unlike anything else. But that very sense in this embodied state in, a, in this room today is connected on these various levels in this kind of mystical cosmology with much deeper archetypal forces. We all carry different archetypes. Everything has its soul. Everything has its kind of essence. Every individual thing in this kind, uh, in this kind of vision is what I'm sort of you know, setting up, what I really want to, uh, to explore as a way to go into uh, this question of the imagination, what it means, and how it tells us something about visionary art, and finally at the end, visionary design. Um, the term imagination means many different things to many different people. If I ask you, oh, let's talk right now, what, is, what does it mean? And, and so I want to talk a little bit about different ways that it's been uh, described. On one level, uh, the kind of simple ones we just think of fantasy. It's sort of making something up. It's kind of a reverie. Uh, it might be a productive reverie where you're 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 composing a poem. You you want to describe something in a story, and so you imagine what the room looks like, and then you describe it. Or it might be just sort of the the machinery of the mind going off, where you you know, oh, I imagined that this thing was happening, and I knew it wasn't true, but it kind of takes you over with a sort of uh, vision, a kind of a fabulation, perhaps a a, a fiction. But there's deeper senses to the to the imagination uh, as well, even within uh, the Western world that's turning away from that kind of mystical vision that Blake described. You know, because in many ways that's what the uh, the the modern world does is it reduces the authority of those mystical uh, uh, inspirations or that deep intuition, that deep poetic uh, intuition that we'll talk more about in a little in a little wise. But still, the imagination has this very important role. The philosopher Immanuel Kant saw it as kind of a, uh, uh, a synthetic function that allowed us to take different aspects of our perceptions, the way we see reality, the way we organize time, the way we perceive space. And it, it's what kind of draws it all together into the ongoing flow of one reality that we perceive, you know, more or less most of the time. So it's kind of behind the scenes sticking things together. And in a way it's an interesting vision because it gives us a deeper sense already that when we talk about the imagination we shouldn't just be talking about mere fantasy or just making things up. 
that there's something more profound going on in this realm of, of the psyche, in this realm of the images and stories that come up. Just as an aside, I mean, one way of looking at Burning Man or describing Burning Man is it's not just sort of an art festival, but it's a celebration of the imagination in all of its realms, from its kind of hokey, carnivalesque, uh, you know, cheesy uh, midway show side to its mo sort of most ecstatic visions of, you know, archetypes and angels to, you know, future scenarios and all these different worlds are here. You know, uh, all these different portals into different pockets of space time, different historical moments incarnated in art cars and clothes. It's this like festival of the human imagination of the whole storehouse and then drawing these things together and making new connections, uh, mixing them up in new ways, synthesizing them in new ways. So it's a, it's a very apt theme this year, the psyche, because the psyche has these uh, deep connections to the imagination, to the imaginal realm. When we first hear the word psyche, when you just, when you just pick up on it, you know, we're like, what exactly does that mean? And we think of psychology, which is kind of like the science of mind and trying to heal our, you know, fucked up neurotic personalities. And it's like, it doesn't have that, that deep resonance. But a psyche is the, the Greek word for soul. And that soul, uh, has a much richer role to play than simply like our neuroses and our, our kind of, uh, complexes that, that modern psychology or at least some modern psychology uh, treats. And one way to, to get into this issue of the psyche and the soul is to tell a very abbreviated version of the Greek myth of uh, Psyche and Eros or Psyche and Cupid. Because it's a, it's a very strange, very interesting story and I'll, I'll, again I'll, I'll do a, a pretty uh, quick form of it. But basically Psyche is the youngest daughter of a king, you know, king and queen and her oldest uh, sisters are kind of shrews and they're married off to other kings to keep all the political situation okay but Psyche is extraordinarily beautiful extraordinarily beautiful and so beautiful that suitors try to come and win her and they just can't deal with it they just it's too much they, they just they just quail at it so she remains in this very strange position and people begin to kind of fear her and think there's something sort of wrong about her and not coincidentally some oracle, one of the oracles they listened to at the time, says that it's it's time for her to be sacrificed to the beast. So they drag her to the top of a, of a hill and tie her there and leave her for the night. And everyone imagines that that's it. She's sacrificed to the great serpent monster, uh, and and we're done with her. Well, what happens to Psyche? She wakes up and she's been miraculously untied from this post. So she wanders down into the other side of the valley. She finds this beautiful valley, incredibly gorgeous. Oh, the butterflies and the lights coming through the dappled trees and the streams there. And it's this enchanted valley. And there's this remarkable house, this palace of gold and jewels, the most extraordinary building she's ever seen. And she goes in and it's full of all the pleasures she could ever have. Marvelous wines and, and fruits and there's these sort of mysterious kind of spirit robots who come out to sort of help her in all of her wishes and she's like kind of a little blown away by what's going on here and she's told that the, the master of the house will be coming that night you know and meeting up with her as sort of basically a, her, his new bride and uh, this is all sort of her you know this is her new life so she waits the night and then the, 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 the fellow comes, but in darkness, in darkness. She does not see him. And she loses her maiden head, as they once said in the day, but rather enjoys it uh, and looks forward to the, the repetition of this uh, every night when her lover, husband, uh, benefactor comes in the dark and they whisper and they, and, they, and they follow the ways of love. But her days are a little bit more restive because she's not really sure what's going on with this guy. And she begins to hear the call of her of her sisters. They're weeping. They're upset. Her parents are upset. They know that she wasn't killed. They don't know what happened to her. And she's feeling the human tug of family, even though these people are kind of a drag. So she's you know doesn't really know what to do. So she starts talking about it with 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 the guy. And he's like, look, if if we go down this road, it's going to be a disaster. We should just we got to stay away from your sisters. We have to stay away from the whole scene. 
and, and just not, don't listen to them, don't talk to them. But she keeps pleading with him, keeps pleading with him, and he says, okay, okay, go ahead, tell them, tell them you're alive, but just don't believe them, don't do anything they say. Well, of course, once she starts talking to her sisters, they're very happy to see her, sort of. Uh, and eventually they wheedle her enough so that they go to, uh, to visit her new, her, her new spread. And they walk in and they're like completely overcome with envy. Like, oh my God, how did she get all this stuff? We're married to these miserable, petty-ass kings and we're not getting this kind of stuff. So they start to like nag her more and more. Well, who is this guy? Who, how do you even know? You don't see him. He, maybe he's the beast. He's an evil serpent. So he, she, they freak her out. So she starts to think, oh my God, it's this guy who's coming I'm sleeping with every night is this horrible serpent. Uh, and so they, they, they hatch this plan that she's going to like pull up a light and see him and pull out a knife and, and kill him. So she gets ready. She's freaking out. She's got to see this guy. So she, so she, it's middle of the night. They make love. Go, they're sleeping. She wakes up, pulls out a, a, an oil lamp, and it's the most beautiful being she's ever seen by far. And it's the god Cupid, which is kind of a dumb name. Eros is a much richer uh, and more appropriate name for this being. And she falls just even more in love with this god, this god suddenly before her in all of his uh, beauty. And she's sitting there just like staring at him, holding this lamp, and she goes in to kiss him. And then a drop of oil falls from the lamp and lands on his shoulder and awakens him. And he wakes up and is in love, totally in love, and is that, ah, that's it though. Now you've seen me. It's over. It's over. Sorry. It's over. And so he, he, he flees. And then the story goes on. And there's a, she's, she, she seeks him. Aphrodite hates her because she's so beautiful. Produces a lot of trials that she has to pass. And the various uh, beasts of the kingdom help her overcome this. And it actually ends, unlike many Greek myths, on a happy note with sort of reuniting of, of uh, Eros and Psyche. But the real key part here, and it's not... I'm not, there's no answer. There's no like, oh, here's what it means. It's that it sets up a couple of really profound things about the relationship of eros, of desire, of the imagination of desire, because, of course, desire infuses the imagination. It's one of the most, it's the fuel of the imagination. Uh, the relationship of desire and the soul, the soul that understands itself, that finds itself through the imagination, through eros, through uh, this sort of rich world of the imagination. And one is, is that you are immersed in mystery, that there's always a darkness to the side of it. There's always an unknown. And the very human desire to reconnect and see and weave into a human community, whether it's to connect with the sisters and, and parents at home or whether to find out who this, what this guy looks like, that that is always in opposition to the further deepening uh, of this relationship, which is incredibly exquisite on one level, but also elusive, also uh, runs out. There's an ambiguity, an ambivalence that you can't get away from. And the more you try to get away from it by fixing it, by grabbing a hold of it, it's kind of a metaphor for relationships as well, uh, the more likely you are to actually lose it and actually lose the juice and be left with, with uh, uh, a, a, an idea or an image, but not the, the living force. And another aspect of this relationship is the, is the beast, is the beast. That to enter into the world of the imagination, into the world of the imaginal, the visionary realm, you have to sort of be willing to go where the beasts are, where the serpents might be, and to kind of dance with that and recognize that's part uh, of the world. I mean, even though the beast has sort of a negative connotation in the story, if you imagine it more from her side of things, she's having to confront this fear, confront this imagination, confront the possibility that this rich life and all the hedonism that feeds the psyche, all the, the, jo the joys and, and, and pleasures that feed the imagination are somehow bound up with a, 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 a beast, with a serpent kind of figure. So all of these sort of themes are brought together in this, in this uh, marvelous myth. And what the myth, for me, it, it sort of calls to deepen the engagement uh, with the psyche and to really see it, in my mind, in terms of the imagination and in terms of the, the desire that infuses uh, uh, the imagination. The, um, 
other way of thinking about the imagination that goes beyond uh, poetic fancy, intuition, inspiration, even art, is to think about it as an actual place. That just as there is a sort of physical world that we're engaging with these senses, our senses five, that there is an additional realm, a realm of the imaginal, realm of the imagination. And this is really the sort of, you know, pre-modern way of understanding it, that when, when Moses is before the burning bush, the burning bush is burning. It doesn't mean there's actually a physical bush that has this miraculous thing happening to it, the voice coming out of it like some kind of cheesy movie. It means that on some level, on some level of experience or perception, there's this kind of fire, this kind of visionary fire, and it's overlapped, it's superimposed on the physical world. So it, 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 it's a really important distinction because it allows you to recognize the reality, the reality of experiences on the level of the imagination without making what I think of, and, and for many reasons, is a mistake, which is to literalize it and to believe or to claim that it's something that actually happened in the material realm we share. So instead of saying, wow, I had this visionary perception, that must be the way things really are, it's like, no, I was granted a glimpse of the, of the imagination, of the imaginal world which relates to this world, which uses its images. Again, all of us here, the, the robin, the bird, the dog from the poem, are sort of mirrored in this uh, uh, realm of realized or true imagination. And this, in many ways, is like the way people saw and experienced visionary uh, realities outside of the modern world. And what happens in the modern world is that we demythologize that, disenchant it, drag it down into the way that we generally think of imagination now, which is like making stuff up. Maybe at the best, it helps you write a poem or something. But that you can see now, even though the imagination is very inspiring on that level, it's a very degraded concept compared to the richness and fullness of that potential. And that potential, that potential of the imagination as a visionary experience, is what we see or seek through visionary art. That's how I'm linking into this sort of topic of visionary art. Now, there's a lot of different ways to define and talk about uh, uh, about visionary art. If you go to like a mainstream um, kind of you know art form kind of person and you say the term visionary art, they think it means something like outsider art, which means pretty wacky stuff done by people who have no training and are often ignorant or naive. You know, and so they'll say, you know, Watts Towers in Los Angeles is an example of, of, uh, of you know, visionary art. In that sense, of course, it is, it is visionary. Um, but the, in, really, in, in a lot of ways, it's a very denigrating way of looking at it because it denies the fact that the visionary artist, the tradition of visionary art is deeply embedded inside of Western art history and then deeper than that in terms of world art history. Now, if this was like a lecture hall, I'd start showing you lots of pictures and talking about details, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to bring up a bunch of artists that you may or may not have heard of when I can't show you uh, what they're on about. So what I want to do is paint in really broad strokes uh, a story, a myth, if you will, about Western art and the role that visionary art plays in it now. And again, it helps, helps understand why I think visionary art is so important, because it keeps alive this deeper sense of the imagination or the imaginal. So what happens with Western art? Well, probably the most pivotal thing that happens, uh, or there's probably two, two really pivotal things that happen, is the entrance into three-dimensional representation, where you start to paint paintings that look like they're windows out onto a real world that looks the way that our eyes construct the real world in our through our biology. So you start developing perspective, and here's Renaissance perspective. Now, paintings no longer look like medieval icons where they're flat and kind of out of, you know, they're in different proportions. Instead, they look like you're looking through a window. It's like you can see the perspective is what we recognize in our normal life. What's really happening there is the whole realm of art, the whole realm of imagination is beginning to move in and colonize physical world, the material world, and it very much is the most appropriate reflection of what's happening in, in, in Western culture in general. As we, we move into science, we move away from mysticism, we move away from the dominant 
you know, teachings of the church, we move into a world that, that affirms material reality as the sole reality. So it's reflected, of course, in the images, in the vision, in the imagination of its artists who are suddenly painting more and more realistic pictures of the world. But this tradition does not last and it begins to dissolve. There's visionary artists scattered through it, but I'll leave that, I'll leave that aside. But at the end of the 19th century, this begins to dissolve, literally. Impressionism, which I'm sure all of you have seen, Monet and all the, and, and, and Degas and lots of impressionist people are very familiar with. One way of, of describing what's happening is that that material window that looked like it was looking out onto an actual space begins to dissolve into dots. It begins to become fuzzy. It begins to sort of play with the actual process of perception. Well, what happens if I suggest colors this way? What if I uh, dissolve the sort of sense of perspective into these different kinds of spaces? So suddenly the whole history of representation with its emphasis on the material world begins to dissolve. And the ultimate expression of this dis dissolution is, uh, and, and believe me, the art history lecture will not last for the whole time. The ultimate expression of it is the turn towards abstract art. What's abstract art? Where well, you turn away from the representational world. You're not painting an apple. You're not painting a nude. You're painting some set of images of colors, of shapes. And I think, and I probably sh I share this, is that I think a lot of us think of abstract art as probably a little, a little cold, a little too 20th century, a little too flat. You know, interesting can be can be inspiring. But a little, you know, why look at that when you can look at whatever, Alex Gray or William Blake or, you know, something a little with a little more juice to it. But what's fascinating is that the, the, the artists, the individual artists who first made the turn, first started doing abstract art, were all totally immersed in visionary and mystical worldviews, in theosophy, in Steiner, in this kind of worldview that, that, uh, that, that Daniel Pinchbeck was talking about. So the turn away from representation turn away from the Western idea that material reality is the primary reality is inspired by this whole culture of mysticism, of bohemianism, of uh, hedonism. And here, wait, things are starting to sound a little familiar. I mean, you, we all have an image in our heads of what the late 19th century avant-garde artist was like. They lived in a little garret and they're poor and they're suffering for their art and they're drinking absinthe and they're having wild affairs and they're go running off to Tahiti and hanging out with the native girls and stuffing the native girls. And, you know, it's this whole bohemian kind of mythos. But in many ways it was very true because it was the way to re-plug into these streams that feed the deep imagination. And these streams are altered states, whether through, uh, you know, drugs or alcohol or other extreme means, uh, dropping out, not being part of the, the state, the mainstream society, hedonism, exploring the realms of desire and being willing to plunge into it in all its agony and excess and ecstasy. It's a, it's a whole way of being that becomes the kind of, uh, that feeds this deeper visionary impulse that starts to express itself more and more throughout uh, 20th century art. So part of the reason, I think, that visionary art is important and part of the reason people respond to it so much and respond particularly, let's say, to a figure like Alex Gray, who I'm sure all of you are familiar with and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about in a second because this is one artist that I know that most of you at least have seen some of his images and, and I wish I could show them because even the, the people who don't think they've seen them probably have seen them. Uh, but one of the reasons that these figures are so important to us is it's almost, it's one of the only places in modern Western culture where we retain something of that old shamanic, mystical, uh, truth-seeking uh, possibility. That there's a possibility of that because, it, because what, however much whatever we believe, maybe we believe in scientific materialism or a little skeptical, we don't know, but somewhere out there, there's an artist who's like going as far as they can into their own peculiar individual experience and as a visionary artist into visionary experience, having inspiring visions and then bringing them back in a way that says, this is what I saw or something like what I saw or something that I want to communicate inspired by what I saw. And you can engage it not as a religion, 
not as a new myth that you either believe or don't believe, or a new story that forces you to like revise your entire worldview. It's more of an inspiration, of a kind of visionary glimpse. In a way, it's allowing you to partake of some of that uh, visionary experience. So there's a heroic quality to uh, to the visionary artist. We 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 sort of uh, in, and to the artists in general, we see them as sort of figures who kind of go through these deeper experience that maybe we have sometimes, maybe we don't have uh, have uh, other times. And and Alex Gray again is a really really good example of this, because his artwork really expresses in many ways the uh, uh, the, the multiple layers of visionary art and what it means to be making you know visionary art in our world today. Uh, it, show, it shows these different layers um, of the imagination because it's rooted, for one thing, in his own visionary experience. And then out of that experience, he begins to layer these multiple uh, layers of uh, symbols from different cosmic systems, astrological glyphs, things from the Kabbalah. He's drawing in it, that synthetic work of the imagination. He's drawing these different symbol systems together and providing an opportunity, a kind of glimpse that, that you have into this sort of more real than real world. And uh, one of the great things I like about Alex's paintings is when there's a new one that I haven't seen. It's like I know that first glimpse is going to be amazing because they're so uh, overly real, you know, photorealistic, hyperrealistic that they just jump down, you know, your your uh, optic canal and shake you, you know, often, or at least in my experience. So it's this this incredibly intense uh, communication of a deeper experience of the imagination of visionary experience, of where visionary experience happens than we normally have in our, in our day to day, even in our, even in our normal dreams. So it becomes a place uh, to engage this imaginative matrix. Because I really think that, that it's in that kind of process, in vision questing, in engaging with those uh, uh, deeper uh, realms, that we draw forth uh, the, the inspirations that lead us on. It's like one of the things that the imagination does is it imagines the future. It says, oh, well, this could happen this way, this could happen that way. And we're overly dominated by dark imaginings. It's harder to manifest. Uh, we're over-dominated by, uh, by uninteresting images. It, 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 it often drives us into a, into a cul-de-sac. So the imagination is part of the way we manifest. But where do we get our imaginations from? Where do we get our images? Well, unfortunately, most people get them from just the, 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 the mainstream meme mess, the, the, uh, the world of programming that comes from your parents who weren't really given much of a chance to find themselves in a lot of ways, and you're trying to make that up as you go through media and advertising and different political views. It's a mess out there. So how am I supposed to find vision for my own life, for the, for the life of the planet, for poetic inspirations in the midst of all this? And, and what the visionary art kind of points to is a process wherein you go through a kind of experience. You engage uh, on a deeper level through dream work, through uh, psychedelics, through trance, through meditation, through just engagement with these stories, with these myths that can take you over and begin to weave themselves into your life through dream and through synchronicity. We feel this kind of stuff on the fly. It's kind of what draws us here in, in some ways is to enter into a life in which the imagination is more real and more alive and more tantalizing and suggestive uh, uh, all the time. So that, that, that realm of visionary art really mirrors and, and, and gives us, a, in a way, a model of a way to bring that into our lives. Whether, you know, whether we consider our own decisions we make art or not is kind of beside the point. It's the same sort, um, sort of model. But I think there's also... Uh, a problem with the, the the hero model of the visionary artist because it still is that struggling individual that Western individual who's breaking through and finding their own particular truth and then heroically or magically or, or uh, bringing it back to the people and a very important model it's never it's never gonna leave us but I think something else is happening now, and this is really where we get to the kind of last part uh, of the talk and touching on a little bit of the things that, that, that Daniel was, was talking about in terms of, you know, where do we go? How do we, how do we approach 
what's around the bend. And while I think, you know, anything that's inspirational on the level of the visionary, even, you know, cheesy television at its best, is useful uh, in the game to stay awake and to stay enthused and to stay uh, desiring of a, of a richer, better future, I, I think that, that that hero model has some problems because I think that in a lot of ways where we're going is towards a world of collaboration, of collectivities, of networks, of people linking together. And so this whole last little drop meme I have about visionary design is to take that basic model we have with visionary art, where the visionary artist is able to go back and touch into a deeper realm of the imagination that has more reality to it than we allow, uh, that is full of information as well as full of force and inspiration, and to bring that back into the world. What I want to see is some of that same inspiration, some of that same imagination coming into the realm of design. Now, what do I mean by design as opposed to art? And I'm going to contrast the two. Design is, you know, as a fuzzier kind of connotation, but I like the fuzziness. So let's talk about a couple of ways that design is really uh, crucial, ways to characterize it. Uh, you know, one of the ways of, uh, of saying is that design tends to be functional on some level, but not strictly functional. So you're designing a system because you want something to work, or you're designing, uh, a, you know, a, uh, an egg, you know, an egg beater, and you want the egg beater to work in a certain way. So on some level, unlike art, the concept of design has a functional, practical dimension to it. But it's not just functional and practical, um, because the design is also very much about how you bring art and aesthetics and creativity and style and trendiness to the functionality. So if I'm making my egg beater, I don't just want it to achieve certain effects. I want it to look kind of cool. So by being cool, uh, uh, you know, it's going to maybe sell better, but it'll also, you know, fit in with people's lives because you want to bring a little, that's one of the ways we bring art into people's lives is through design. All of us here as consumers, which all of us are, consume partly based on design, which isn't just the design of products, but the design of a whole uh, ethos, a whole uh, meme space. It's really the way you develop style. So a graphic designer, what are they doing? They're taking images, they're taking the material of art, images, shapes, forms, recognizable symbols, archetypes, etc., etc., but they're putting them into a slightly different use. They want to communicate a message. They want to uh, create a set of associations between products and ideas. And that's this, none of this is a bad process because it's part of our practical world. It is the world we live in. And if these ideas that we have here that we're inspired here are going to get out, um, uh, even though in a way there's always the, the devil's bargain problem, they're going to be coming through design uh, in many ways. And so the question then is how to bring that, that design process on, onto, in a way, a kind of visionary, uh, on a visionary level. And I forgot to mention one other important part about design, is that design is almost always collaborative. Like in any kind of industrial sense, in any kind of, you know, uh, even graphic designers, whatever, they're always, it's, it's, it's really something that comes out of the way that groups function. And in a way of thinking about, one way of defining design is it's how do you set up a system that's going to enable a group to function better or to achieve what they want or to put, to put out an expression because you need to have a different way of engaging. You can't just go off and be the solitary, tortured artist who has to like change everything at the last minute to, to seek their absol absolute ideal image. People like that are a real pain in the ass to work with, and they don't tend to last long in the kind of realms that I'm talking about. But the kind of realms I'm talking about are crucial because that's where the infrastructure for what's coming next in both a good and bad way is happening, and that the kinds of remarkable or quick or sort of mimetic transformations that some people see around the bend that Daniel also talked about a little a little bit I believe in many ways are coming through the design process so the question is then how do you bring that visionary element that deeper imaginative element into design so you're not just basing your design on the, the trends of the moment or on a merely functional purpose or on some very uh, low-level idea of what people want like so many products are so many products are insults to what the potential of human beings and human collectivities have. 
Uh, and they're already there. They're embedded in the product, in the branding, in the way it's designed, in the way it's manufactured, in the way we learn about it, in the way we can't learn about it. We can't find out where it comes from. All of these things are functions of a design process that, that are bringing these things to, to market. So how do we bring this kind of visionary uh, you know, element into that? Now, I, I, you know, I have, there's so many different ways of talking about it, specifics in terms of, you know, en, you know, energy systems and et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to go into that. What I want to do is look, come back to Burning Man a little bit and think about that whole idea again that, like, we come out here because of, the, at least in one respect, because of the art. And that's often how it's described. It describes itself. It's an art festival. It's a creative art festival. We also know it's a party and a mystical rite and all these other kinds of things. Uh, but, you know, that's one of its main... Uh, claims to fame is it's a place for art uh, and it's very particular, very visionary kind of art. Visionary not just in the sense that um, it's made often by people who are not officially trained as artists, which is part of what's remarkable about it, uh, but visionary in the sense that it has very much to do with this visionary tradition and with this sort of uh, deeper realm of the imagination and even further that it has to do with the actual process of vision, of perception that when you go out, when you navigate the playa at night, you're navigating this very peculiar realm of light technology. And many of the artworks out there play tricks with your perceptual system, particularly an enhanced perceptual system, but that's not necessary. Uh, and they take advantage of the way that the human perception system, uh, perceptual system creates, in some ways, imagines its reality. What am I perceiving out there? How far away is, uh, is that? Is that a cube? Is it a portal? Is it a, is it a, 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 you know, a Snoopy? I can't tell. You know, and it's playing with that sense of ambiguity on a very technical level. It's one of the marvels of, of my, most of my favorite playa art is very simple arrangements of electricity and lights, some rebar, PVC, and they stick it out there and it does marvels to your mind. Oh, it reminds you of this. It looks like that. It calls you in. It seduces you. We move through the playascape as we're sort of seduced by these things. So there's a very rich sense of visionary art here at the playa, and it's part of what draws, draws people back here. But this site is also a site of visionary design. And we don't always pay as much attention to the design on that level. I mean, of course, we have to deal with it because when we come here, you can't just show up. You got to get a system going, and that system almost always involves other people. And most of the system is functional, practical. But if you just do it on a functional, practical level, it's kind of boring, both for yourself and for the other people that you want to provide something to. So there's a little bit of aesthetic there. There's a style. There's a twist. There's a spin. There's something going. You go out there. You grab memes. You grab oh the furry thing, or oh the playa thing, or oh the you know the the uh, alien thing, and you and you recombine them and recrystallize them to design your environment, to design your camp, to design your 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 artwork, to design how you're going to deal with your gray water, to design all this stuff. You know, and some of us we do better at than others. Some of us more fun than others. But we're all deeply involved personally on a design process in precisely the sense that I mean, and that it does have a visionary dimension, that that's that William Blake vision where, you know, beating the dog it reflects the whole political situation or reflects the nature of heaven. It's like what you do with your gray water, even if you end up going, oh, uh, I don't really deal with it, dossing it, is part of that visionary experience. And to draw to that place where the visionary infuses all this absurdity and, this, and the, the, the things we actually have to deal with on a functional level, in a way that's the kind of gesture, that's a way that I see things uh, evolving. So that's how the visionary design works like in a, on a level that all of us here participate in. But also Burning Man itself is designed, it's engineered, it's a, it's a conscious environment. One of the, the, the best myth about Burning Man is it's just about like free expression. You know, like it's about everybody coming out here and just having free expression. Well, no, I mean, it's constrained. You can't go over here. You can't do this. You can't put your thing there. There's a lot of organization here. This organization, the decisions, zoning questions, where things happen, what's allowed, what's not allowed, all of these things were developed necessarily in most respects in order to keep the, this, the system functioning as it got larger and as more of the state forces paid attention to it. So it's making design decisions all the time. And in many ways, we're in a designed environment. 
but we're in a particular kind of designed environment that wants to keep the undesigned, the, the mysterious, the chaotic, the turbulent as accessible as possible. And that's where it differs from most kinds of design environments where things are like over-design, where they, they try to make everything happen. They, they, they want to they constrain your experience from the get-go, like Disneyland. Disneyland is an incredibly well-designed environment, but it's designed to channel your imagination in very specific ways. And it does it in, in you know, sometimes creative and playful, but in a lot of ways sort of an insidious manner. Well, the playa is designed to, like, avoid that. Like, you can, it's still a theme park, but it's this crazy, multi-dimensional, madcap, you know, festival of theme parks, you know, where each theme park goes in a different direction, and, and it's made by hand, and it's made by, by you know, folks you know. So uh, it, it, too, is a designed environment, and the kinds of questions that come up, about, well, are we going to do this or do that? Are we going to zone this or zone that? How are we going to deal with the art? How are we going to deal with the Borg too? All of these kind of mechanical questions about the event are also visionary questions. They're also ways of thinking about how to maximize visionary experience and that to sort of incarnate that whole uh, visionary realm. Uh, one just a simple example from this year is the, the d decision to move some of the theme camps back from the esplanade into the middle sort of, you know, circles of the camp as a way to break up the kind of suburb city thing that was developing. So that's a design decision. Like, well, let's, let's set up an experiment and do this, you know, do it this way and see what happens. And we're the guinea pigs. We're the, we're the Petri dish, the, this open, evolving Petri dish that has all of the elements of engineering in it, what we do with all of our functional problems with our shit and water and electricity and all these things in a de an environment devoted to the visionary. So in, in that respect, I see it as a very inspirational in terms of how do we begin to introduce that visionary element into the practical design questions or technologies or systems that we're involved with in our normal lives or even involved with uh, uh, in our careers. And where I hope uh, Burning Man is evolving, and I see signs of it kind of both ways, is to an increasing embrace of some of the more tawdry, not necessarily that inspiring elements of what it means to be out here, particularly in terms of energy consumption, and to bringing a sort of, uh, how do you, when you recognize that environmental problems and environmental constraints are excellent opportunities to practice the deeply imagined, desired, visionary potential that we all have, that it's a great problem. It's, a, it's in, totally inspiring. It's not just a problem that if we don't fix in some practical way, uh, it's going to kill us. You know, so we can go off and do our art and parties over here. It's that that energy has to go over here and bring those things together, bring the practical problems that we're facing on so many levels in our society with that visionary inspiration, which is an inspiration both about information, about knowledge of how to do things, and about the mystery, the lights off. You don't know who you're sleeping with, but it's marvelous. Thank you. Hello. Thanks for your talk. Hold up, Mike. Real you, close. You haven't uh, haven't expanded very much on the old-fashioned sense of the word visionary, as uh, like when you talk about. When people talk sometimes about visionary architecture, it, it carries this, this kind of pos uh, positivist kind of uh, 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 um, will to kind of carry a model for future generations or a project for a society or a kind of you know descriptions of, of, of how things could be in the future. Um, and well, I guess the, the answer is easy because I see a bit burn, Burning Man as a kind of experience of how we could as well. You know, develop our society in the future a bit more. But I don't know. Do you have something to, to say on that? Yeah, that, that, that's a that's a good question. He was just he was raising the point of w another way the term visionary has been used, an important sense of it, which I think just feeds into to most of what I was saying. Which is particularly if you talk about visionary architecture, visionary architects are really they're creating models for the future, for how society can evolve, can be. Uh, and it's not just that they that they're like you know inspired by 
uh, you know, fairy tales or something. It's that they're they're really trying to design in many ways uh, a whole system for how people can can live and can transform, can move away from uh, unhealthy patterns. It's actually kind of both sad and marvelous when you start to get more and more into visionary architecture, which I've been doing more recently, because in really way, in some ways, it's the best example for the kind of design process I'm talking about, because it's you have to design everything, and you're designing every the place where everything else happens. Uh, and there's so much remarkable stuff out there, and you just look at, at the you know the way, like say, the United States has been developed with these sprawl cities and or these sprawl you know suburbs, and what could have happened if it, well, let's just take one state and try to like build you know wisely compressed urban environments that have public space and da da da. da. I mean, there's so many marvelous answers, and these things are happening on the fringes, and they're very much an important part of the ideas and inspirations that come into this the whole topic of visionary design so I'm really glad you you brought that up because it's it's really key and that's part of what Burning Man is about again is it's the way it's set up the way it's designed is an architecture of space and that architecture of space lets certain things happen even the decision to let the man start spinning around has a great reverberation in the architecture of space because like the way you orient yourself at night is no longer quite so solid so suddenly the space is a little bit more topsy-turvy. It's probably my favorite element of the design this this year because it introduces that degree of turbulence. But architecture is a really rich model for, for understanding and approaching this question of, of visionary design. All right. um, I was wondering what you think about... Oh. I was wondering how you think about um, how contemporary and modern art fits within visionary art. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question because it seems to me that w one thing that's happening now is that, uh, and I'm no like total expert on contemporary art, but you know I try to keep up, uh, is that in in re in reaction to sort of the kind of arid conceptual sort of ways that people are plunging into more and more uh, intense material. So you have paintings with shit on them, or dead pigs, and paintings about drugs, and there's more and more of a willingness to draw from uh, the kind of deep, like deeper zones of popular culture. And that's one element I didn't talk about, is that one way of talking about contemporary visionary art is that in addition to drawing off of traditional visionary uh, symbol systems and drawing off of people's individual experience, is they're very, they very much have to do with popular culture partly because of this history of the 60s and how that influenced popular culture. And now, more and more contemporary artists are turning to it, and you're starting to see signs of this kind of overlap. So there's like a big uh, show at the at the uh, 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 MOCA this this fall in L.A. on uh, called Ecstasies, and it's like 40 like established contemporary artists, mostly young, whose work more or less overlap some of the issues of visionary artists and at the same time there's like a, a show of opening of like strict psychedelic underground visionary artists and there's some overlap between those so I do think there's actually more and more conversation between these these two realms partly because the, the mainstream one is running out of ideas and there's so much richness in this tradition that's been kind of disavowed so I, I think that there's going to be more conversation uh, between the mainstream Kind of world and the sort of underground that more we see reflected here. Hi, um, you spoke a little bit about Disney, and I just walked in, and I'd like you to speak a little toward uh, comparing what the, as far as the design, how you would, what the differences and the similarities are between, say, Black Rock City. In the world. Right, right. That's a great question. Uh, it's it's a funny one too. When you the more you more you more you think about it, the richer it becomes. Uh, one of the ways is to, is to say that it is an, an architecture of the imagination, in the sense that it's both places are are sort of are drawing you into a liminal and otherworldly space, but they have very different qualities. In Disneyland, for the most part, the other world that you're being drawn into is kind of cutesy and and acceptable and, and ultimately supports family values and it's kind of a friendly place. Whereas here it's a little bit more up for grabs what the implication is of any of the myriad worlds that you might be drawn into. That's one difference. Another is that Disneyland, even though it has all these, I mean, one similarities, but there's all this 
these different places that you go. Well, do I want to get on that ride or get on this ride? Do I want to go into the haunted house world? Do I want to go in the Tom Sawyer world? And that's how we navigate the playa network. Like, well, do I want to go to that world? Ah, do I actually want to go through that door, that spinning wheel? Mm, no, I won't do that one. I'll go over here. So this is kind of choosing of entering into these different kind of imaginative portals. But here, it's it emphasizes the differences between them, the, the brokenness, the fragmentation, the multiplicity of them, and it's kind of this this uh, sense that everyone can create a portal and everyone can kind of go into it, whereas there's this subtle, it's too strong a word really, but there's this subtle fascism to Disneyland where it's very much in control of the range of your responses. Uh, and even to the way the place is designed. So one thing that's interesting if you go to theme parks is to try to get somewhere that you wouldn't normally go and look around. Like if you go like to the back of like the concession stand and there's this one place where the garbage is and you can kind of go over it and then you look back at the realm and suddenly the fantasy collapses because you can see all the girders and you can see where they're, how they're feeding the system. So in a, in a classic theme park, you have this very well-defined little pocket of, of imaginative, imaginative play supported by this whole elaborate machine, machinery that's unexposed. But at Burning Man, we not only have to expose the underlying framework. It's a great pleasure. That's one of the, the delights of playa art is you see this marvel in the distance and you come up to it and you're like, oh my God, it's doing this thing to my brain and I'm reminded of this and it's the other world and it's just a bunch of, oh my God, wow, a, what a great idea. What a great thing to do with PVC. I never thought of that. And then that takes that, that idea goes and the next year they build something out of that. So it's open source as opposed to like, you know, uh, my little playground where I, where, I, where I have the thing. But I don't want to say to you all negative things about Disneyland because the Pirates of the Caribbean is an excellent experience. <laughs> What's that? Haunted and Haunted Mansion, absolutely. Hello, I would just like to say thank you very much and thank you for bringing into the sustainability issue because that's been really something that I've had to reconcile within myself. And just a comment. You talked about light and sound experiments. If you haven't been to the Haunted Garden, go to the Haunted Garden. Deep Playa, Deep Playa, Deep Playa. There's no address, so just go. Find it. Thank you. I like that, Carol. That's great. Okay, I guess. Should we do that? I guess um, I, I want to give an opportunity for the wonderful, beautiful person below me to describe maps, to talk about maps. Yes. Hi, I'm Valerie. I work for MAPS. MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And you are right now in the MAPS theme camp. We're going to be having psychedelic lectures here every day in the afternoons. Um, well, tomorrow is our last day. So if you really want to hear a lot more about MAPS, please come tomorrow afternoon. And the President, Rick Doblin, will be speaking at 4. And we'll tell you all about all the research that we're doing and the vision and all that things about MAPS. And also, please pick up a maps brochure up here in the front. There's more by the door. Um, and look through it. And visit our website, maps.org. Didn't you really love Eric's connection of imagination with the concept of you are immersed in mystery? Those of you who have been lucky enough to make it to the Burning Man Festival a few times can probably relate to being immersed in mystery there. It's the only place I know where you can have a powerful psychedelic experience without ingesting any drugs. Because as you know, of course, the word psychedelic means mind manifesting or soul manifesting. And until you've been to Burning Man in person, you really don't have much of an idea what incredibly imaginative souls us humans can uh, manage to manifest from time to time. As you just heard, I wasn't able to make it to Burning Man myself this year, but I've already started putting away a little money each week so I can be sure to make it there next year. In case you aren't aware of it uh, yet, uh, next year at Burning Man, MAPS is going to be celebrating their 20th anniversary. And I'm sure you're going to be hearing a lot more about this in the months to come, but if you've ever thought about going to Burning Man, then I think next year is one you really won't want to miss. Well, that about wraps it up for today. Thank you again to Eric for 
for taking the time to put together another Burning Man talk for us. Eric, uh, as some of you uh, probably know, was one of the original Palenque Norte speakers in 2003, and he's always found time to support all of our efforts here in Palenque Norte, and we really do appreciate it. And it's pretty amazing considering uh, all of the things Eric's involved in. Uh, I know he's uh, working on a new magazine with Daniel Pinchbeck. Uh, I think it originally was called Medicine, but now I believe they've rebranded it as Evolver, so stay tuned for that. Uh, I, I know Eric is an editor of Evolver magazine, and he's also got a new book coming out uh, called The Visionary State, a journey through spiritual California, and uh, I've heard a few good things about that already. I think it's uh, one you probably want to. Hopefully, it's going to be out in time for Christmas time, and put it on your Amazon wish list. Also, Eric's uh, Burning Man essay that's titled Beyond Belief has just been published in a collection of essays called Afterburn that were edited by Mark Van Proyen and Lee Gilmore. And uh, that essay, Beyond Belief, by the way, is the uh, basis of Eric's talk that he gave uh, at uh, Burning Man in 2003, and it's actually in our podcast uh, of Psychedelic Salon number three, in case you want to hear that. At least you can hear almost all of it. <laughs> Unfortunately, our generator died near the end of Eric's talk that year, and we didn't have a battery-operated recorder as a backup, so, well, you know, there's always something like that on the playa. And again, thanks to Bruce Damer for recording this talk for all of us, and also to the Maps Bop Camp Snowflake Village crew that put all the structures together and the sound system and everything. Gosh, we really appreciate you guys. Couldn't have done it without you. And also a big thank you to Chateau Hayuk for the use of their music as our theme song here in the Psychedelic Salon. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>